Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasilika, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. It is my pleasure to uh, start talking to you about some of the clinical aspects of COVID-19 vaccine and great follow-up to LJ's presentation. I want to start with herd immunity, which is a term we've heard a lot about. And herd immunity is probably not the best word for what I, what the concept I want to talk about, which is protection conferred to susceptible individuals in a population when a sufficient proportion of the population is immune. And other better terms potentially are community immunity, community protection, or indirect protection. But herd immunity has really fallen into uh, what we generally talk about. So I'll kind of use those these terms interchangeably. But herd immunity depends on the reproduction number, the R sub zero. And that is the number of people to which an infected person transmits the infection. Now, for the most part, for the calculations and the math I'm going to talk to you about here today, we're going to assume that the entire population is susceptible. But please know that in reality, R sub zero gets smaller as people become more immune in the population. And then I'm also going to assume equal mixing of the entire population. So those are big, relatively big assumptions that probably aren't real, but nevertheless, they make, they simplify the concepts. Okay. For SARS-CoV-2, the estimated R0 is two or two to three. And I want to take an opportunity just to compare that with measles, which has an R0 of 18. And that's the most contagious disease we did, that we know of. So we need a threshold, the threshold, the minimum amount of people in a population to hit the herd immunity concept threshold would be one minus one over R0. Okay, here is a graphic picture uh, depiction of herd immunity. And so the black and white people is susceptible, uh, unvaccinated and susceptible. The red are infected and the green uh, in my, in this particular one, I was trying to illustrate at vaccinated herd immunity. That is a sufficient number of people who are vaccinated. And so you can see on the right-hand panel, when we have a sufficient number of people vaccinated, we really prevent the infected people from coming in contact with the susceptible, unvaccinated and susceptible people. Maybe the unvaccinated and susceptible people might be, might have medical contraindications to immunization or, or something like that. Maybe they uh, just refuse to be immunized and then they're protected by the uh, rest of the population. And here are some herd immunity estimates for other diseases and what one in, which includes SARS-CoV. So you'll see that measles, a very contagious disease, we calculate that we need above 90% in order to be, to protect, to have measles not circulating in the community. For polio, it's 80-ish percent. And for smallpox, it's also about 80%. 
SARS-CoV-2, it's estimated that it needs to be about 60%. And then for H1N1, it was calculated to be about 25%. This is the Great Barrington Declaration. It's something that was in the news a few weeks ago. And some infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists got together and decided that let's let COVID, they made, they made a plan to let COVID-2, the COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, uh, run its course. Um, we'll do what we can to protect the vulnerable. But because of the long-term, say, let's say economic shutdowns and, and, you know, the disruption to society, let's just live our lives and let COVID-19 run its course. And then we'll get, we'll eventually get to what we quote, call, quote, herd immunity. Now, several other public health officials and infectious disease epidemiologists have said, ooh, bad idea. And this approach to herd immunity has been only described for immunization strategies, when you can get sufficient people immunized. No infection has ever been able to achieve herd immunity, not even measles, which is very contagious. So it's unlikely, this is a likely unable to protect the vulnerable. And even under our current situation, consider that we have people who are uh, vulnerable and diseases is running in the, po- in the population now is taxing the healthcare system. Imagine if we removed even the uh, mask wearing and uh, social, isol- uh, social distancing that we're currently doing. We would probably overtax the healthcare system. So back to what, what do we need to do to get immunization to herd immunity? And for, assume we need a community level of about 60%, which I showed you on that um, slide with the table. And uh, let's also assume that 10% of the population has been infected. And we're also going to assume that our vaccine confers 70% of protection. We've heard some news that maybe that might be a little higher, but we'll see how, how that all turns out. And to achieve herd immunity, we're going to say we need at least a 70% vaccine uptake. So vaccine hesitancy is an important issue. So let me show you how I got to that. So current level of the population is uh, immunity is 10%. And if we vaccinate 70% of the population and the vaccine is 70% effective, we get another 49% protected. So that's how we hit almost 60%. So One of the things I want to do is is talk to you about making sure that we get vaccine confidence in healthcare providers so that you understand where we've been and where we're going so that you can talk to your patients about uh, your vaccine, your confidence in your vaccine and how we're going to use this clinically. So LJ has talked to you about phase one, two, three. Uh, licensure or maybe EUA, but licensure would then follow. And then phase four are those monitoring systems that he talked about. Operation Warp Speed, not in my opinion, not the best name for it, but uh, that was put in place early in the pandemic. Uh, it's a process uh, overseen by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense. And it not it didn't apply just to vaccines. It also applies to diagnostics and therapeutics. So it wasn't just for vaccines. And I think that we missed that a little bit, or maybe I do just because I focus on vaccines. Uh, but the goal for the vaccine portion of that was to produce 300 million doses of COVID vaccine with the first doses available by January 2020. This has to be done with significant investment, both private and public, and coordination also for both private and public. The protocols, as was described by LJ, 
are overseen by the federal government and no steps have been eliminated. And I want to absolutely emphasize this. LJ did a good job of this, but uh, just so that you really take that home, that steps haven't been eliminated, but steps instead have proceeded simultaneously such that manufacturing and filling might be completed before the phase three trials and licensure or the EUA is even ready. It's a financial risk, not a product risk. We really, the risks have been financial. We are making sure that the, that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed when it comes to efficacy and safety. And as mentioned by uh, LJ, transparency is, is one of the critical components for vaccine vaccinate with confidence. And the protocols for the phase three clinical trials have been released. They're available and uh, which is unprecedented. A word that has been overused with COVID-19, but I continue on. (laughs) Nine biopharmaceutical companies, including those who are furthest along in their vaccine testing, have uh, signed an unusual pledge to, quote, uh, uphold high ethical standards and sound scientific principles, suggesting they won't seek premature government approval of uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And then we've talked a little bit about emergency use authorization and whether or not it should be used for the vaccine. Uh, Next slide, please. LJ mentioned the 50% FDA threshold for vaccine efficacy. And then the vaccine uh, trials have a data safety monitoring board that's independent. And they look at the number of cases among the clinical trial participants after a certain number of cases have been collected. And then they do interim analysis. The results of those interim, interim analysis might be that, okay, keep going. It might be, oh, this looks great and we need to stop it now because the vaccine is so good that we need to stop collecting cases. Or the other one might be futility, that it looks like the vaccine does no good and we have to stop. So those are reasons why you want to have interim analysis. Those are true for most trials, clinical trials involving medications. So we'd want to keep that as going as well. And then next slide. Although LJ already talked a little bit about the emergency use authorization, I wanted to talk about how healthcare providers might deal with this. And you get the, you know, the HHS secretary will authorize the EUA. It, the extent and, and bene- the benefits and the risks are known. There is an option, to, of course, to refuse the vaccine, but the potential benefits and risks are known. And there are, are alternatives to the product that benefit, that there might be benefits. You could tell the patient about those. In this case, of course, there will be none because there aren't, a, there is, there are no vaccines. And then what are the consequences of refusing administration? And these facts will appear on a fact sheet that would be given to every patient. So it's not like informed consent necessarily, unless your organization decides they want to do that, but there's no obligation to collect a, an informed consent signature. Next slide. The, uh, there's a alloc- vaccine allocation plans have been in the works for months trying to decide how best to allocate this vaccine because regardless, it will take a little while to have vaccine that is available and ready to go for the entire population. So we want to maximize the vaccine's impact by minimizing morbidity and mortality, uh, minimizing di- uh, social and economic disruption, and then ensuring equity, of course. And the preliminary plan by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is Phase 1A is healthcare workers and Phase 1B is essential workers, high-risk conditions, and those people over the age of 65. And in addition, we need to be sure we have a broad network of vaccine providers. Next slide. This is a graphic Venn diagram of uh, who these people might be. 
and approximate estimations of who might be in phase 1A, which would be the dark blue healthcare workers, and then phase 1B, which is the rest of the, the, this population. Next slide. The National Academy of Science and Engineering and Medicine has also put together a framework for allocation of the COVID-19 vaccines. And their plan is similar to the ACIPs, except for it goes a little bit further. They went on to phase two, which are teachers, childcare workers, critical workers. Um, you can read here phase three, young adults, children, workers with roles important for functioning of society. And phase four is everybody else, not mentioned previously. So a comprehensive plan to get everybody in the offer the vaccine to everybody in the U.S. Next slide. Of course, equitable allocation is critical. There have been a lot of discussions around this. Please note that uh, all, because we're the United States of America, decisions regarding actual vaccine allocation has been made locally. And those local plans have been filtered up to the CDC. But nevertheless, this is a strategy that is being used. The National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine proposes a social vulnerability index as a way to allocate vaccines to high-risk populations. It is a measure that was developed for public health to aid in natural disaster uh, response. So it's already a public health measure. It's composed of 15 different variables, but it includes race. And oftentimes, although I'm not, not a legal expert in the area, but sometimes when race is included, in um, it can become a legal issue. Uh, another index includes the area deprivation index, which is a geographical measure that is associated with health outcomes. And it is a measure that integrates income, education, employment, and housing quality. That index has also been proposed as a possibility for where to push vaccine out to improve the health of the populations that are most vulnerable. Next slide, please. The um, CDC's playbook already on version two is guidance for public health and provides a comprehensive plan. It's useful for anybody who is coming up with vaccine allocation plans. And of course, that will be also featured in the next COVID-19 talk that will be coming up. Next slide. Another important clinical issue is vaccine record keeping. All enrolled uh, vaccine providers must enter data into the immunization information systems, IIS or immunization registries within 24 hours. That's part of the CDC playbook. Providers will have to develop a process to match the doses of vaccine, the first and second dose, so that the vaccine recipient gets the same dose, uh, the same vaccine preparation. Excuse me, I didn't say that right. Vaccine recipients will be offered a record card and vaccine recipients will be encouraged to just take a photo of your card with your smartphone. And then providers must have a plan for reminder recall. Certainly they can use their current system for reminder recall. Uh, you don't have to make a new system. But proven systems include phone calls, texts, and electronic communication because the, most of these vaccines require more than one dose. Next slide. And then finally, a little bit more about equity. This is a pandemic. And COVAX is the World Health Organization's plan for equitable access to vaccines among the entire world. And about two-thirds of the world is involved in COVAX and trying to determine how to best get vaccines to the whole world. So what happens is, is that wealthy countries are paying a little bit of a premium for the vaccine in order to get the vaccine access to uh, middle and low and middle income countries. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast of COVID-19. 
be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.